0: Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Cersei Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined once again by our music man, John Hodges. John, thanks for joining us today.
1: Brandon, so good to see you again. How are things that you ran?
0: Uh good. You know, it's it, it's I'm in Houston, but there's like this Houston. There's this hint of fall. Yeah, you know, it's lovely, like is,
1: isn't it? Memphis is like that too.
0: It's not miserable it's when the delightful. sun goes down, or miserable like before the sun's all the way up. So it's nice. Yeah, it's just kind of right. Very
1: there. good. Very good. Very I'm good. Hopeful. It's nice to know.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, we're we're getting into fall proper, and I just want to let everybody know there's there's kind of one last chance to jump in on the Circe Atrium offerings for this year. You can get into uh, Norms and Nobility by David Hicks with Tanya Roselle and that group. Heidi White will be covering three Shakespeare plays this year. She does a, a comedy, a tragedy a history or Jonathan council is offering a new uh, atrium this year, which is just contemplating the great ideas and you get to bring whichever text you want to, to that conversation. So it's kind of fun. Uh, so wow. please check those out. It's uh, Time is kind of running out to, to get in on those for the year, but you can see them over at the Institute uh, dot org backslash atrium. John, you know, we've talked a little bit before, um, I have a little bit of music music background. I you know I was in the marching band, symphonic band from like fifth grade to to about eleventh grade. And yeah, did a, what did you play? I played the trumpet. Um Perfect. So yeah, yeah. I had I'm that, a
1: trumpet player myself. Uh,
0: you know, I was in the Dallas area, so I even had the opportunity to play in the Myerson Center Center as a symphony student. So it that was kind of a really interesting. I'd done some some a little bit of musical theater. I was in Bye Bye Birdie in, in high school, and and uh, now I'm singing with our faculty choir here, but. Uh, you suggested this time something that I was not at all familiar with, uh, something ah. uh, uh, called a a tone poem. So right uh i'm i'm really this will be pretty new for me musically so I'm, I'm looking forward to it can you get us kind of into what that is and what we're gonna be looking
1: yeah at? sure oh yeah yeah but your your uh your high school uh music career sounds a little bit like mine i the first conducting i ever did was a performance of, of was a run of bye bye birdie that's funny you should mention that i was a junior in in high school when we when they did it and they lost their conductor and they asked me if I would do it and <laughs> I had absolutely no idea that it was difficult and so I said sure you know I had, sure I was word. completely ignorant of all the <laughs> ins and outs of that so I I did it and I'm glad I did uh, but uh, it was uh, my first play too and uh, I played the trumpet too and I was a uh, trumpet in the in the I did I actually did play in a marching band once. Uh, uh, and I gave it up pretty quickly because it was so hard <laughs> on my, hard on my chops. It was.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a it's a whole different thing. With it, it's a whole different thing. We used to say, "Pour on the
1: blistex and pour out the sound."
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it's especially tough Where... when it starts to get into the cold part of the uh, the football season. Oh my season gosh! Out there oh marching. my gosh! Yeah. Sitting
1: sitting in the stands too, and playing for oh anyway. Okay, so it's fascinating that you're a trumpet player too. Well, we're going to talk about tone poems today. A tone poem. There there are two kinds of instrumental music, basically, uh, since the 17th century. Uh, One is what they call pure music, and the other is what they call program music. Pure music has an interior, interior form, but it doesn't make any references to outside that form. It's a, okay. it's an abstract kind of music. As a Haydn symphony, for example, most of the time is a, I mean, they, would, they had names for them sometimes, the Clock Symphony or the London mm-hmm, Symphonies mm-hmm. or something, but they were just nicknames. They didn't actually make reference to uh, anything outside of themselves. They were forms for their own sake. Mozart symphonies are like that. Uh, and so on. Well, Beethoven, you know, inherits Mozart and Haydn's uh, 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 formal musical training. Haydn is a- actually uh, Beethoven's teacher. And uh, But Beethoven, by the Sixth Symphony, uh, his Sixth Symphony, is writing what we call program music, I- at least venturing into program music, because the Sim- Sixth Symphony um, makes reference. It's called the Pastoral, nicknamed the Pastoral Symphony, but it's more than just giving you a a nickname for the symphony the music itself is depicting certain pastoral things like uh, uh, sitting beside the brook and hearing the water go by or uh, birds chirping or thunderstorms or things like that so there was an injected in the romantic period the beginning of the romantic period with the the, really the big romantic composer uh, that kicked off the 19th century uh, Beethoven um, and and there's an injection of this idea of that music can speak to extra musical things, tell stories, uh, re- represent uh, uh, characters, and so on, like in an opera or something. Only there are no words. It's all instrumental music, you understand. Mm-hmm. There are lots of other kinds of music. Don't get me wrong. I'm just talking about two different kinds of instrumental music in the eighteenth, 18th, seventeenth, 18th, 19th centuries. So what we have at the beginning of the Romantic period is something called a program for a a piece of music. Well, Franz Liszt in particular started writing what he called tone poems. He departed from the sort of symphony form altogether and allowed a storyline to depict the the form of the piece. So So that meant that you had to have in the program... Uh, in the in the, the the concert program in front of you, a typed story, and that's mm. why they call it program music. Um, you know, <laughs> Bob wakes up in the morning and is um, uh, hungry, and so he goes and finds some breakfast, and then after that, he. Uh, you know, runs off to work and then at, at work he has these problems and blah 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 blah. So there's a sort of storyline of his of the of the piece. And so the beginning of it should sound something like waking up in the morning and maybe the mood that he's in and so on. So there so the the uh, sections of the music instead of being internally uh composed like a sonata is internally formal. Uh, the sections of the music, um, depict the the elements of the the sort of beats in a play, as it were, the beats in a in a storyline. Well, um, that's that's typical of the nineteenth century. Liszt was big on that, uh, and eventually other composers start doing it too. I mentioned Beethoven Six. That's that's one of the first where you see a, 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 an, a an instrumental work called. a a symphony called uh, a program piece. And from that, a little later, you find Hector Berlioz uh, writing uh, Symphonie Fantastique. And Symphonie Fantastique is a five-movement sonata form piece uh, that retains some of the form of the old-fashioned symphony, but it tells a story. And it's all about this this guy who... um, uh smokes uh, uh drugs smokes um um what do you call it um I'm, opium uh, opium that's it thank you opium he's smoking opium and go- and goes into this sort of fever dream of finding a woman and falling in love with her and then taking her to a ball you know and dancing uh-huh. with her and so on and then becoming in a jealous rage murdering her and then in the fifth, that's the fourth movement, the fifth movement, um, uh, actually, it's the end of the third movement, fourth movement, he has uh, to to be hauled up before a judge and uh, is condemned. And in the fifth movement, they have the march to the scaffold and he is beheaded. It's a it's a musical comedy. So. <laughs> um <laughs> But it's that it's this fever dream. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got the movements a little wrong. He dies at the end of four and uh, and five. The fifth movement is the um, is being in hell. He's in hell. Hmm. Who does he meet there? But a, a a twisted version of the girl that he murdered. So uh, it's it's a fantastic story, you know, um, but it's a but it's an instrumental piece that's called a symphony in French, uh, you know, symphonie fantastique. Uh, And yet it's telling this story. So this is typical of the 19th century instrumental composers. Well, what we're going to show you today is a late 19th century piece by one of the sort of end, the, the end, the last of the great romantics, Richard Strauss. Strauss uh, was born in the middle of the century. I'm going to get his date wrong. 1864, maybe something like that. Uh, And uh, by the time he's 24 years old, he's written some very famous tone poems, one of them in particular called Don Juan. Uh, and he was a big hit. It was a big hit in the uh, symphonic world. Very complicated, very difficult to play. Lots of hard chromatic uh, uh, runs for things. And eventually, he he gets into this rhythm of, of writing these these tone poems. He wrote a, a one called Death and Transfiguration, which is profound. And then uh, this one is called the one I'm sh- going to show you is much more light hearted. Um, it's called till Eulenspiegel's Merry pranks hmm. Till Eulenspiegel is a is a, a mythological figure, uh kind of not mythological maybe but folk figure kind of from the Middle Ages um they it may very well be that he existed at one time, but if he did, uh we've sort of lost him in the midst of all the various. Tales that were told about him, you know, we don't really know which which are true and which are not. Uh, but uh, Strauss was infatuated with this this guy Till, and he wrote this tone poem to sort of tell Till's uh, uh, story. He's a uh, Till Eulenspiegel is a is a, uh, a prankster. It's it's called Till Eulenspiegel's Merry Pranks. And uh, he's a prankster. He's always playing jokes on people and causing chaos wherever he goes and uh, giving people a hard time and so on. Some of the things that are are described in the piece, piece is about 14 minutes long. So I think we'd have time to play it all. Okay, Um, great. He um, he's he's a. he causes chaos in the marketplace at one time. He rides through on a horse and knocks people down and and sneaks up and takes the rock out from under a, the wheel of a cart and sends the cart flying down the hill and crashing into people. And, and he just laughs about it. He thinks it's very funny. Another scene, he's uh, impersonating a priest. There are a group of priests, monks that are going by and and he puts a monk's habit on and sneaks into the group, you know, and starts uh, debates and arguments with them. And you can you can see his little face sticking through. If you listen to the music, there are a couple of themes for Till, Oil & that show up throughout the entire piece. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the monk's music going by and then you hear his little theme mixed in the middle of it. His little twinkling eye causing trouble, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he um he pretends to fall in love and, and he, he chases, he, he gets involved with some philosophers and he's, and he pulls them off of their, their topics and causes all sorts of intellectual problems for the philosophers and laughs at all of that too. And eventually he steals a horse and he leads the, the police are chasing him. The, the, the gendarmes are, are chasing him through the streets and through the, out into the countryside and, And uh, you can hear the the horse galloping, you know, and all of that. And then, but then they catch him. And when they catch him, they take him before the judge and the judge uh is very serious and says you don't understand you're really causing a lot of trouble and you are in a lot of trouble and he just scoffs and throws it off you know you hear his little theme laughing at the judge and so on and eventually the judge says i don't think you really are taking this seriously you're the death penalty is is what you're looking at <laughs> and uh and he then he gets a little nervous and he squeaks there's a e flat clarinet part that goes like that is sort of squeaking. And uh eventually they take him to the gallows and they hang him. And you get to hear that in some, some graphic detail. You hear his okay. the, the heart, the heartbeat, you hear his, his uh, uh, fall, you know, and the noose and all that. And then you hear, <laughs> you hear his uh, heartbeat slowing down and stopping. He just dies right there. Huh. And then and then you think, well, <laughs> that's that's the end of the story. Well, <laughs> what happens is the 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 sort of narrator that started the whole thing, you hear a little tune that sounds like we're going to tell you a little story once upon a time. That once upon a time theme comes back at the very end to kind of tell you, don't worry, this was only a fairy tale and all it is is a morality tale. But remember to follow, you know, to obey your parents and, <laughs> or something. So there's a kind of a don't let this happen to you feel, you know, in the piece. Yeah. Uh, And it ends with uh, a kind of, uh, I don't know, momentary celebration of Till's life, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a fun little piece, and it's very interesting musically. For, for those of us who are really st- uh, student studying scores, this is a great one. It's in what they call a rondo form, a kind of modified rondo form, because his themes are established at the beginning of the piece, and then they keep coming back in all sorts of modification, modifications uh, throughout the work. So I'm going to play just the first couple of bars of it and stop, and then... So you can hear those two themes and then we'll go back to the beginning and play the whole thing. Okay. And you can start listening for, and I'll try, I'll try and speak over it. I hate to talk over the music, uh, but occasionally I'll say something about here's, here's this theme or here's the beginning of this segment, or the, here's the, uh, here's the the twisting of the theme here and there, that sort of thing. So you can kind of catch it. Okay. Um, there are two, two themes that are associated with him at the beginning um did you did you have a question you asked a question
0: no I'm just thinking no, you're I, kind of stopping it, it was interesting as you were descri- describing this change from what had been the type of music to this kind of storytelling music Yeah. No. Um, uh and it seems like even a story that existed we saw this some with the ballets and things too there's existing stories but it strikes me this is really the that this is probably the practice of a lot of people who are getting composing work today because they're doing it for film or television, well, right? Yeah, they're given is, the film script, and this is what yes, they're
1: told to do. Exactly, exactly. And there's another element to that, really, with Strauss in particular, because Strauss was one spectacular orchestrator. Mm. He really, he's. There are probably two most famous orchestrators in the history of music. One of them was Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, the Russian, and the other is Richard Strauss. Strauss was an amazing. um uh discerner about what instruments could do and what they couldn't do, you know, hmm. and matching things up and using them in new and different ways and uh exercising the whole orchestra at various moments and then dropping down to just a couple. Mahler was pretty good at it too, but I think Strauss outdoes Mahler. So so uh uh film score composers need go back and look at Strauss's orchestrations. Okay. Uh, and study them. They're so they're so interesting and so inventive uh, and creative and so on. So uh, yeah, the combination of uh, of uh, program music where you're telling a story with the music and the uh, the vast knowledge of the instruments that Strauss brings to the table really is a feast for uh, hmm. film score composers.
0: Uh, before we start rolling on the sound, I just want everybody let everybody know we are going to put a link or uh, a file of the of the sheet music. Cause there's gonna be some things John's talking about visually as well. Uh, if you're looking at the music. And so that way, if you want to do that, you can push pause real quick, open up that file from the, from the notes and, uh, follow along too with John.
1: So very good. Yes. That's sort of, we'll, that's what we'll do. All right. Well, let me play you just the first few bars of this to show you the two themes, the sort of, um, once upon a time theme that becomes, a. a, a, a uh, a theme that uh, that uh, is associated with Till throughout the entire piece. But then a very, very uh, famous uh, French horn call that is associated with Till. Um, and I want to play it first. I, and I love it. People if people could look at the score, because, um, well, let me play it first. Then I'll explain why. That's how the story starts. Now we're introduced. That's how it begins. And that tune that you heard to begin with, excuse my singing. Um, that's that's going to come up time and time and time again. So you want to listen for that in its all in all of its modifications. And 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 the the horn call is going to come up in all of its modifications, in all sorts of chromatic changes and and twistings and turns and so on um what i want to want you to look at the score for for those of you who read music the the horn call is itself off beat hmm. it's in six eight one two three four five six one two three four five six like that and the first note of the horn call well here's what it sounds like without the beats it goes and down two octaves from there, another octave from there that I can't sing. Um, but the rhythm of it is one like that. So it's all offbeat, it's all trickster ish, it's all tricky. It fools your ears, is what I'm trying to say. And yeah, it, doesn't, uh,
0: move, it doesn't move where you expect it how,
1: to. That's how he is. This is a terrific picture of Till Eulenspiegel. The first time he, he you hear him in this horn call, it's piano. It's supposed to be played softly. It's like he's just looking around the corner at you and kind of with a little twinkle in his eye. And then the second time you hear it with the horn, it's, it's mezzo forte. It's louder. He's getting confidence. And uh, he gets louder and louder. And then the orchestra takes the tune and runs it faster and, and louder and louder and louder until it builds up to a big climax. And then we're into the piece. But that's the uh, that's the that's the tune I want you to be listening for. Well, let's start it again and I'll walk you through what I can walk you through. Oh, I want to tell you one thing uh, about what Strauss himself said about the program for this. Someone uh, this was written, by the way, in 1895 when Strauss was about, oh, I don't know, 31 years old, something like that. So it's an it's an amazing accomplishment for a. A young man, I consider that being a young, young man, and he—he uh, he was. I told you, Don Juan was his first great success, and I think he was only 24 when he wrote that. So this is a real genius. Um, but when they asked him about the fair, the tales, you know, the folk tales about Till, and how, what what do each of these bars mean in the piece? He was a little vague about it. He said, the way he put it was something like uh understand that those two first themes are the themes for Tillow and Spiegel and you'll listen for them throughout the entire piece and know that at the end he is captured and hanged and dies <laughs> and apart from that you uh, it's up to you to decide which segments are or which parts of the famous uh, uh fairy tales uh, uh folk tales that you all know i think he was i think uh, p- people kind of knew the all the original tales of of Till O'Brien and uh, so he he could be vague and say just you know imagine what which one went with which bits of the music but i've i think i think it's fair to say at a couple of places this is what's happening so i'll point those out uh, as it goes by all right okay let's let's listen uh, to the whole thing it's about 14 minutes long in in, in total introduced and he's skipping through the the, the the marketplace looking for what trouble he can cause kind of whistling to himself. Perfect day to cause some trouble. Somebody, and then he sees the cart. Maybe I could cause some trouble with that cart. So he sort of sneaks up, looking very innocent. And he pulls the rock out, and it goes crazy. Then he just laughs. Can you hear him snickering? Then he spots a group of monks walking along, very stately monks. So he puts on a monk's habit too, and he sneaks in amongst them. Listen, see if you can hear him. Especially right there. thorn call in there to the next trouble. New thing. out of them and then going off and laughing. You hear all the variations on his theme in here? That's all? to death. Life drains away. What? Remember, children, this is just a fairy tale. to remind you to be a good little boy or a good little girl. Don't take it too seriously. It till Eulenspiegel's merry pranks. Now the word Eulenspiegel is a kind of an interesting word, I think. Um Eulen in German is owl, hmm. and Spiegel is uh, like glass and maybe maybe meaning looking glass, like a mirror. And so the owl is the devil's bird, the, the owl is the mysterious. Wise but crafty, you know, uh, bird and one to be. It's so, sort of spooky about something spooky about the owl. So to say, oil and is the is the 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 owl in the looking glass. Somehow, I don't know, but that's. Uh, I think it's a morality tale that they're telling. Um, it's funny about how these kinds of tales work because you'd think that it would be you know, kind of off-putting to have the main character executed at the end, um, but given the the little epilogue that you heard, there's a kind of we're back home now, and everybody's safe, and we're all in the bed, to, you know, we're going to mm-hmm. bed, it's night time. we're ready to hit the sack, and all's well, and just remember that, uh, you know, you can't live like that and get away with it, so there's a little There's a little morality in it, but it's also kind of a celebration of, of uh, you know, the independent spirit and the twinkle in his eye and the causing trouble and all those things that uh, children, you know, kind of dig. And that's I don't know. It's it's a it's a very popular piece. It's a piece that's played often in the symphonic repertoire uh, for its story and for its sparkling orchestration and. I think tremendous in, uh, in uh, creativity using these themes and hearing them in all these different sort of formats, you know, so for, for formations uh, in order to show the many sides of the of the character and and uh, the all the different stories that he's getting into. So that's Till Eulenspiegel.
0: I um, I think when we did uh, the Barber of Seville. We talked a little bit about how uh I, I think i even mentioned our friend uh wes callahan brings stuff in his in talks often that we all have if you're old enough you have exposure to good classical music because you um you watch the looney tunes right and so you <laughs> ah, right so uh maybe i'm, uh, kill I'm the, the, wabbit, kill yes. the sure and so my uh i think the parts the, the storyline that you're talking about in music it comes through but in my mind i often see it like you know the cartoon version so in that in that even that opening um where the french horn is a little more isolated that you kind of really drew our attention to at the beginning and it has yeah. that uh off kilter that that and then it's like that that like long drawn out piece the yes. first couple of notes seem like you know someone just kind of walking down the sidewalk and then that is him like sliding behind something to hide, you know, to hide, you know, like hide the car or whatever. It kind of gives uh-huh. that feel, and he kind of does that a couple of times down the sidewalk to get to where he wants to see to be uh, mischievous. But in between the spots where he's hiding, he's just walking like you know, nothing to see here, you know, the- nothing exactly right. That's right. I'm just my,
1: minding my own business.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> I love
1: the fact that it's so offbeat that way. Yeah, and usually meet up a little as you do it too so it's it's it really throws your ear off but it's uh it's very cleverly written very cleverly. yeah
0: you you can see this emotion of a character who's trying to uh to blend in like like he's not up to anything but then but then it uh he gives himself away with his with slight moves here and there yeah that's right that's right
1: now did you do something with the barber of seville did you say uh, are you talking about something we did
0: together we talked about um not barber Seville.
1: Here's your Figaro. Figaro.
0: That's what I meant. Yeah. The that's thing, right. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't the know same people. character. It is the barber. Yes. That yes. We. I think we ended up talking features. about both of them on that episode. Ah. Okay. And maybe, maybe that's so. where my my mind was remembering. But uh, yeah. And then obviously the the barber Seville is the one people is, uh, hear most often on the Looney Tunes. But that, that's true. That's right. That's right. A lot of these. Orum. But a lot of these pieces were were used by the early, uh, cartoon makers. You know, um, to kind of. Give some weight to their to their fun.
1: <laughs> you know, that's a good. One. It's interesting. I thought you were going to say give some weight to the 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 music because, but I think it's it's that the music was far better known then, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so people were exposed to it, and so they get the jokes,
0: right? Right. You know, if yeah. you
1: know the piece to begin with, and then you hear Bugs Bunny singing "Kill the Wabbit or F- Elmer Fudd singing "Kill the Wabbit, and right. you know it comes from Wagner, you know, right? Uh, uh, then huh, you get the you get the jokes in it, and it it uh, lends like you say lends a lot of of weight to the to the cartoon. Yeah. Well,
0: and you have what this... it really it,
1: what it tells me is that we've we've lost some of our musical literacy. If even yeah. our children could listen to that and make sense of it uh, a little bit in the past, uh, then uh, that's not the way it is now. And really, a lot of people only know those tunes from the cartoons because right. they haven't listened to the original,
0: have they? Yeah, so you lose. We've lost both the literacy and then we've lost the joke, right? And, um, the, exactly. The, you can't
1: you can't laugh at it if you don't know the depth of it. Sure.
0: Well, and even the, car- the character himself, Elmer Fudd's kind of a is kind of a rube, right? But the rube oh, even yeah. had exposure to good music because that's what he would have heard. That's what he would have been playing on the radio if he had heard anything. Right. That's what he would have heard, right? So.
1: Yeah, that's right. That that's right.
0: Well, this was fun. Thank you. I Like I said, this was uh, the idea of a tone poem was not one I knew well or, or didn't know really what it was. But obviously, I, I probably have experienced its um, its descendants, if nothing else, uh, kind of as music is oftentimes impaired with of story for us in our in our day and age, thanks to film and television. But yeah, let me t- let me say two last things, if you don't mind. Um, one is. First of all,
1: I'm not saying that once tone poems and and, uh, and program music were introduced in the 19th century, that pure music stopped being composed. Mm-hmm. The, the composers still continued. I mean, Brahms, Schubert, uh, Mendelssohn mm-hmm. uh, wrote, wrote uh, symphonies, Mahler wrote symphonies, but the, often they would have some kind of reference point. Not Brahms so much, but but uh, uh, Mendelssohn, for example, his third symphony is called the Scottish Symphony, and it mm-hmm. has sort of Scottish folk feel to some of it. The fourth symphony is the Italian symphony, and it has some dance rhythms from folk music of Italy and so on. So you begin to see how the two merge together a little, but many composers continue to write what they call pure music. Uh, all the way into the twentieth century, you find uh, Prokofiev's mm-hmm. uh, uh, symphonies are all very pure music pieces. Um, it is interesting to me that that uh, as uh, as the nineteenth century goes on, uh, the Romantic Romantic period goes on, um, literature becomes such a big part mm. of music. Uh, it's the, it, you know, the, the opera was born in the Baroque period. It's true, but it really hits its its prime in the very end of the eighteenth century, and through the nineteenth century, with the late Mozart operas, uh, and then, but into Rossini and Donizetti and the other the uh, bel canto composers like those uh, Bellini, and but also eventually the big German composers uh, like Wagner. Uh, in his ring cycles and his Mm -hmm. flying Dutchman and so on. So, so um, drama and literature and stories uh, dominate uh, music in the 19th century. Uh, And uh, thinking about um, uh, uh, Strauss, let's see uh, what I was going to say about Mahler. Anyway, maybe there's too much to talk about here, but, I will give you a couple of of other tone poems if you want to listen to some other tone poems. I'll give you some examples. Um, uh, Liszt wrote one called "Les Preludes." The Preludes. Uh, that's a really good one. Um, uh, Smetna wrote one called "The Moldau." He wrote a whole cycle of tone poems, actually called "Mavlast," my my uh, my fatherland, my my homeland. Um, but one in particular that's very potent and often played is called uh, the Moldau. And it's about a, a journey down the Moldau River where you hear various various uh, events happening on the sides of the river as you go. Folk dances and weddings and, and nymphs dancing in the moonlight and all sorts of wonderful things uh, based on Czech folk tales, you know. Um, and then finally with with Strauss himself he, he is the king of them at the end of the, the 19th century. Don Juan is a big one Death and Transfiguration is another big one. He's the guy who wrote also Sprach Zarathustra, thus spake Zarathustra that's so all iconic now the opening uh, to 2001 a Space Odyssey, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the opening of a tone poem by Strauss called uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra, based on the Nietzsche uh, Mm. Zarathustra uh, book. Um, But then also uh, uh, Till Eulenspiegel, very light-hearted one, and then he continues into the 20th century writing in this style. So it covered the, the tone poem is an invention of the 19th century and it carries on into the 20th and there are loads of great examples so i encourage our listeners to go and uh, and pay some attention to some of those other ones they'll love them there are a
0: lot of great ones yeah thank you that uh i guess i was familiar with maybe a few of these than more than i realized but um just didn't know what they were they were tone poems so right that's what they call them thanks for bringing something new to us well, this was a lot of fun. I can't wait to do it again. <laughs> i look forward to it. I Hope it's been helpful uh, and hopefully we'll be full in the full swing of the of the pleasant weather so yes. All right. well thank you for joining us uh, and thank you all for joining us uh, on clarity as we refreshed ourselves at Systems of Learning Doug long ago. Drawing from Springs too deep for taint. You can send your comments and questions to podcasts at searchinstitute.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Quiddity and check out the other shows on the Circe Podcast Network.